Housework, a deer that falls no longer scatters. A bee is filling in the ribs. The leaves become the apron's detail work. Her eyesight changes in the woods. Would you say deer are charismatic animals? Huh. Yeah, I mean, so they're beautiful, right? And they're graceful, and they sort of leap through the through the forest, and they always, always seem to see you before you see them, right?、Mm-hmm. Um, to happen upon deer that 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 just to get to get the jump on them, I guess that's why hunting them is so hard, right?、Um, so it's like, so in that sense, they just seem. I don't want to say prescient, but, but it's like they're always just—they're always just slightly out of reach. And I guess, it, which I don't know, ties back to all the you know myths, the following and the chasing, and the chasing, right? Almost like yearning. Yes. Yeah. And finding joy in that. Yeah. <laughs> When I think of charisma, I think of like charm, and I think of someone like who's charming or whatever, right? Uh huh. And I don't feel like deer are ever trying to charm us. What if we found out that they were, though, right? I mean, I, I, that they were trying to sort of be aloof and elusive or something like that.、Mm. Um, I mean, but I think you know, part of maybe what invites those projections、uh, onto them, myths or whatever, is because they don't really let us ever get close to them unless they're dead. Hunter's song. The toils are pitched and the stakes are set. Ever sing merrily, merrily. The bows they bend and the knives they wet. Hunters live so cheerily. It was a stag, a stag of ten, bearing its branches sturdily. He came silently down the glen. Ever sing heartily, heartily. It was there he met with a wounded doe. She was bleeding deathfully. She warned him of the toils below. Oh, so faithfully, faithfully, he had an eye, and he could heed. Ever sing so warily, warily, he had a foot, and he could speed. Hunters watch so narrowly. Deer have shown up in poetry for millennia, as they have in art. Those old images of deer, those long traditions of deer running through poems and stories and frescoes and paintings, have fed into the ways we look at them today. And the majority of those images have to do with hunting in one way or another. Deer are pictured as enticing and elusive because that's the way hunters see them. This is if you see a deer. I'm Erica Hauser. In this episode, standing, Tyler Carter and I are looking at some of how deer and hunting have shown up in American culture, and the older cultures that form its roots. We started by talking to someone whose work I'd read when I was researching my book, *The Age of Deer*.
Daniel Justin Herman is a professor of history at Central Washington University. Among other books, he's published a great one called Hunting in the American Imagination, which looks at the different ways Americans have thought about hunting going back to the early colonial era. Some of that history is really surprising. It seems that Americans have changed our minds about hunters over and over throughout the centuries. Hunters have been admired and despised at different times. And as we talked about how they're looked at now, we realize that the American view of hunting these days is more complicated than ever, another point of division in our culture. And since deer are by far the most popular animal for American hunters to pursue, when we say hunting these days, we're mostly talking about deer hunting. We wanted to talk with Dan about all this history and how it's led up to the present. He explained, first of all, that in colonial America, hunters weren't terribly respected by most people. Overall, you know, most of the colonists were, were farming peoples and they considered farming to be the source of civilization, not hunting. So they, they juxtaposed their own um, uh, domesticated selves, their, their farming uh, culture with that of Native Americans who were hunters and therefore savage. Uh, and so to be a, a full-time hunter, if you were white, was considered to be becoming Indian and to be savage. Uh, you find these tropes again and again in the in the literature of the time that observers say that uh, hunters are sort of Hobbesian in a war of all against all. They don't respect any authority. They don't respect laws. They don't respect governors and legislatures and, and so on and so on. He brought up the way hunters' clothing, often made of deer skin, symbolized their outsider status, in part because it connected them to Native Americans. The other factor I'd say is that this idea about buckskins as the quintessential American costume, um, which in my view was a 19th century idea. In the 18th century, the word buckskins was a pejorative. It was to call somebody lower class if you called them a buckskins. At the time of the American Revolution, though, that view really changed. It switches very suddenly. In the Revolution, in and after the Revolution, when that, that isolate hunting, backwoods hunter becomes sort of a hero of the American Revolution, and it's a mythologized heroism. So it was very easy, uh, in my estimation, to, to sort of transform that Hobbesian backwoods figure who was already an individualist, right? Already a you know, rugged individualist, if you will, who was sort of a, a law unto himself, and make that individual into a protector of natural rights the rights to life, liberty, and property that we hold as individuals. And so, and so this, this hunter as uh, individualist, as uh, a freedom fighter, uh, sort of emerges in the uh, late 18th and early 19th century. And, and that's the point at which hunters become really celebrated in American culture. That's the point at which Daniel Boone comes forward as a culture hero. Later, it's Davy Crockett. Daniel Boone was a man, yes, a big man, with an eye like an eagle and as tall as a mountain was he. Daniel Boone was a man, yes, a big man. He was brave, he was fearless, and as tough as a mighty oak tree. From the coonskin cap on the top of old Dan to the heel of his rawhide shoe. The rippin'est, roarin'est, fightin'est man the frontier ever knew. 
Daniel Boone was a man, yes, a big man. And he fought for America to make all America free. What a boon, what a doer, what a dream come a truer was he. Dan told us that around the 1830s, Daniel Boone was the most celebrated American figure along with George Washington. People absorbed his story through biographies, paintings, periodicals, and according to Dan, it was Boone's story that helped seed the American love of wilderness. And as 19th century Americans began to occupy more and more physical territory on this continent, the hunter as freedom fighter easily morphed into hunter as empire builder. Well, all of a sudden now Americans are saying, not that they're farming people, not that they completely reject that idea, but there's much more emphasis on we're hunting people. We're, you know, brave, daring, chivalrous. Uh, we, you know, we go out into the woods and we conquer. And um, so, yeah, so hunting is very much connected to empire. And of course, they also were reading about uh, the shikar and the safari, the, you know, British uh, great hunters and so forth who were British, the British were expanding their empire at the same time. The Americans kind of want to get into the act. And that very much explains Theodore Roosevelt. Roosevelt is definitely a key figure in American hunting culture, too. He's famous for being a really enthusiastic hunter himself, and he was coming into prominence at a moment in the late 19th century when a lot of game species, including deer, as well as bison and elk and others, were pretty obviously on the decline. Overhunting and habitat loss had taken a severe toll. Culturally, we've really forgotten this, but deer were wiped out from a lot of states altogether by around 1900, and in other states, their populations were really low. So in Roosevelt's time, hunters were becoming aware that hunting as a pastime was threatened. Roosevelt and some of his associates took steps to bring back some of these wildlife populations. Theodore Roosevelt becomes the... the um the sort of symbol of American empire, the great uh, uh, publicizer of American empire. Uh, and, and he identifies with who? He identifies with Daniel Boone uh, and Davy Crockett, forms the uh, Boone and Crockett Club, uh, dresses like Boone as a buckskin outfit that, I, as I remember, it was actually made for him um, by Brooks Brothers or somebody like that in New York. The Boone and Crockett Club, which Roosevelt and some friends founded and, of course, named after two of those hunter heroes from an earlier time, promoted this new paradigm of conservationist hunting, which is still a huge force today. It's the reason we have state wildlife agencies, it was involved in the creation of national parks, and it's the reason that you can't legally hunt deer and sell the meat. It's a whole series of policies and laws and social norms that says we won't just hunt with abandon. Hunting has to be carefully regulated so that the game species will be there into the future. And it also set up yet another new image of the hunter in American culture, the recreational hunter, the fair chase hunter, the one who's in it for the experience as much as for the kill and gives the animal a sporting chance to get away. You're, you're supposed to show humanity um, uh, mercy uh, toward your prey, right? You give it a fair chance to escape. Um, you, you, know, you, you don't engage in unfair means of hunting, uh, like you know, putting corn around to attract the deer and then shooting from behind a tree. You make a clean kill. You don't want to injure the animal. You want to make sure you get a good shot. Uh, so there are all these rules about sportsmanship, which were in some ways very 
to my way of thinking, very Protestant and middle class about sort of moderation. You can kind of see how a society needs to be comfortable to a certain degree before an idea like this makes any sense. If people need to hunt to survive, they're probably not going to limit themselves with a bunch of rules that make it harder to get meat, although they may create a very serious etiquette around honoring or thanking the quarry. But America had arrived at a point where a lot of people, at least a lot of privileged people, could afford to think of hunting as a hobby and a test of manly skill. That comfort and privilege also meant something else. A lot of Americans were living in cities and buying meat from a butcher. Some folks looked at hunting as a way for urban men to reconnect with their heritage. Maybe they grew up on a farm, but they end up in a city, uh, and they're, maybe they're in a white-collar uh, avocation, uh, and, uh, and so they, they feel like they've lost their, their hearty republicanism, their, you know, what, what made their ancestors noble. Um, they, you know, they're, they're not manly anymore, and so they seize on hunting as sort of a right that uh, allows them to recreate the sense of manliness and republican republicanness uh, that they that they conceive their ancestors as as uh, embodying and some of these more urban americans took it in another direction there were opposing strains in the culture that questioned whether hunting might be an immoral act for example the transcendentalists including henry david thoreau Thoreau was quite ambivalent about these issues. He wrote, When some of my friends have asked me anxiously about their boys, whether they should let them hunt, I have answered yes, remembering that it was one of the best parts of my education, make them hunters. And yet, elsewhere in his writings, he sounded fairly opposed to carnivorism. He wrote, Whatever my own practice may be, I have no doubt that it is a part of the destiny of the human race in its gradual improvement to leave off eating animals. You know, Thoreau, to a certain extent, Thoreau's kind of mixed. He respects hunters and thinks that they have a close relationship with nature and advocates uh, for young men to be given a gun and to go out and, and, and hunt. But at the same time, he also advocated vegetarianism uh, and thought that eating flesh was unclean and, uh, and savage. So he both revels in savagery and he rejects it at the same time. While Thoreau saw it as a question, others saw it as a moral imperative and became very concerned with animal suffering and the need for human empathy. By the late 19th century, people were sort of suggesting, yeah, animals can think and they can suffer both. So I think that was one of the dividing points. That, you know, People were less apt to want to take uh, an animal life. Later on, Disney movies, notably Bambi, became another force in the culture that pushed people away from hunting. That movie, which came out in 1942, showed a deer as the ultimate victim of hunting, the baby left behind when a mother is killed. The humans in the film are faceless, a force for evil and destruction. It's had an incredibly lasting effect on the way hunters have been viewed in America since then. What are we going to do today? I'm going to take you to the meadow. Meadow? What's the meadow? It's a very wonderful place. Then why haven't we been there before? You weren't big enough. Mother, you know what? What? We're not the only deer in the forest. Where did you hear that? Thumper told me. Well, he's right. 
There are many deer in the forest besides us. Then why don't I ever see them? You will, sometime. On the meadow? Perhaps. Hush now. When I set out to write a book about deer, I knew, of course, that a lot of that book would be about hunting. Why was this intimidating? Even though my brother and many other relatives hunt, I've always felt very separate from it, and I came to realize that this is not just about my personal tastes. It has to do with my whole life experience, my education, my identity, and the way hunting, like so many other things in American life, acts like a wedge that divides us. It's hard to be neutral on hunting. It's like guns or the rebel flag. It's a tribal marker. Even something as simple as spending time outside, I came to realize, is polarized in America. The fact that I identify as a hiker marks me as part of a specific tribe that has been growing apart from the hunting tribe for over a hundred years. In this tribe, we look at nature as a place to get purified, at wilderness as a sacred temple, and we go there not to change anything, but to be changed. We seek to leave no trace. So for me to go into the field and be with hunters was a definite moment of bridging, of coming closer to something that's always felt far away. And we certainly talked with Dan about how that gap has its roots in American history, but we also talked about things the two tribes have in common. There is also another aspect of hiking, which is kind of like hunting, that it's about suffering. It's about um, working yourself uh, very hard to get to the top of that peak over there and then feeling really good when you've done it, a sense of accomplishment um, and a sense of wonder. And you've got the endorphins, right? There's biology too at work. And you feel when you finally relax after that long climb, your endorphins are flowing freely and you're just free to sort of embrace nature and, 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 and think, wow, that's so stunningly beautiful and I feel so good. I think that has a lot in common with, with hunting. He says even the aspect of the sacred is there in the hunting tradition too. The hunters again and again talked about the, the the scenic beauty, the you know the 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 smells and the sights and sounds, and and they were constantly connecting that to God, saying you know it, look if you're an, if you're an atheist or you're an agnostic, look at just look at all around you, look at these beautiful pine trees and uh, and this beautiful vista and these this surely this shows the work of God. It has to show the work of God, and this is a sort of a trope in in the hunting literature of that time. Um, maybe there's some of that in hiking, too. All three of us who were having this conversation are more like hikers, but like me, Dan can see the appeal of hunting. And I guess there's still part of me that does romanticize the, the going out and stalking and, you know, living on, in nature, living, being part of nature, being, you know, being the predators that we really are. But yeah, I mean, part of me says, you know, there's, that's kind of a aesthetically, there's something aesthetically pleasing about it. And he pointed out that a distaste for hunting might be connected to the tendency to look down on rural people and their habits. This is, this is true of all American history and these, these reform movements, that there's a lot of self-righteousness that comes with those reform movements, that it's often a kind of urban um, uh, sort of sense of, uh, you know, uh, looking down at, at ruralites and, and uh, people who are less educated, people who are poorer, and suggesting that they're inferior to you morally. One last thing he pointed out, that compared with most supermarket meat, hunting might be more ethical. A lot of the hunters I know locally 
um, it's all about getting an elk or a deer for food and then butchering it. And then you've got your store of food for the winter, you've got a store of meat for the winter, but they know mm -hmm. what killing, killing an animal is. Whereas those of us who just buy the meat, we don't really think about the killing very much. And so we, we sort of allowed this factory farming system to develop where animals are treated in the absolute most brutal way imaginable. The larger context here is a long-term decline in American hunting. In Pennsylvania, for instance, the number of hunters peaked around 1980 and has mostly gone down ever since. You might imagine that as the hunting world gets smaller, it becomes more insular, maybe defensive. But actually, state wildlife agencies have begun to reach out to new groups of people, folks that Teddy Roosevelt never would have pictured as hunters, women hunters, and hunters of color. The old mythologies may need to shift, but of course, that's what mythologies do. One of the stories Dan brought up is a beautiful illustration of change. A deer might transform into a woman, a woman into a wife, and a story told in one culture might have deep roots in others. The story that Dan referred to is an American tale with some really interesting connections to both Native American and European stories. It has to do with Daniel Boone as a young man hunting for deer on the American frontier. He and a friend are hunting at night by shining a light between the trees, hoping the eyes of a deer will catch the light. Sure enough, they spot two eyes glowing in the woods and Boone gets ready to fire his rifle. The mild brilliance of the two orbs was distinctly visible, whether warned by a presentiment or arrested by a palpitation and strange feelings within, at noting a new expression in the blue and dewy lights that gleamed to his heart, we say not. But the unerring rifle fell, and a rustling told him that the game had fled. Something whispered him, it was not a deer, the creature flees and Boone chases, though he's starting to realize he had almost shot a person. What he had taken for a deer is actually a woman, though as Boone sees her running toward a house, he still thinks of her in animal terms, saying to himself, I will see the pet deer in its lair. Soon enough, he's inside the cabin and being introduced to the woman he'd nearly killed, Rebecca, a beautiful 16-year-old. They face each other and fall in love a moment that is described as a kind of violent wounding. And the young hunter felt that the eyes of the deer had shined his bosom, as fatally as his rifle shot had ever the innocent deer of the thickets. He courts the blue-eyed deer girl and they marry. That idea of a deer that shapeshifts into a woman or vice versa was not invented by the Boone biographer who recorded this tale. It echoes older tales from both indigenous America and Europe. 
There's a beautiful story from the Inglacotma people of British Columbia and Washington in which a man who's a great deer hunter discovers a deep connection between humans and deer. One day while hunting, he came on the fresh tracks of a doe and fawn, which he followed. They led to a knoll on which he saw a young woman and child sitting. The tracks led directly to them. He was surprised and asked the woman if she had seen any deer pass. She answered no. He walked on but could not find the tracks. On his return, he said to the woman, You must have seen the deer. The tracks seem to disappear where you are, and they are very fresh. The woman laughed and said, You need not trouble yourself about the tracks. For a long time I have loved you and longed for you. Now you shall go with me to my house. They walked on together, and the hunter could not resist the attraction of the woman, nor help following her. As he went along, he thought, It is not well that I am acting thus. My wives and my child are at home awaiting me. The woman knew his thoughts at once and said, You must not worry or think that you are doing wrong. The deer woman leads the hunter to an underground house full of people, and he becomes her husband there. On the following day, the people said, Let our son-in-law hunt. He is a great hunter. Let him get meat for us. We have no more meat. The hunter took his bow and arrows and went hunting. Two young deer, his brothers-in-law, ran ahead and stood on a knoll. Presently, the hunter saw them and killed both of them. He cut them up and carried them home, leaving nothing but their manure. The chief had told him in the morning to be careful and not to throw away any part of the game. Now the people ate and were glad. They saved all the bones and put them away in one place. They said to the hunter, We always save every bone. The bones of the hunter's new brothers-in-law are thrown into the water and this revives them in human form. It becomes clear that this group survives by hunting and then reviving each other over and over again. The hunter lived with his wife and her people. He never failed to kill deer, for some of the young deer were always anxious to be killed for the benefit of the people. The hunter himself soon takes the form of a buck, and he and his new wife have a dear son. Eventually, he kills and revives even his wife and son to feed the people. They are always able to return the beloved to life through bone water alchemy, always feeding the living through death. That indigenous story suggests a type of interdependence and mutuality. Across the Atlantic, in medieval England, a very different culture also created a story in which women and deer substitute for each other. 
but in this case, the tale is less communal, more individualistic. John Steinbeck's retelling of this King Arthur story begins with Arthur's marriage to Guinevere, where all the knights and guests gather in the court. Then Merlin said, Let everyone sit quietly and do not move, for now begins an age of marvels, and you will see strange happenings. Steinbeck really draws out this moment of stillness, with everyone just sitting and listening, waiting for the action to begin. Then came the sharp, quick beat of pointed hooves on the flagstones, and a white stag bounded into the hall. It's followed by a pack of hounds, which attack the stag right there beside the round table before it runs off again. Merlin tells Arthur that these events should be read as the seeds of quests, so Arthur assigns his nephew, Sir Gawain, to seek the white stag. Off he goes with his brother, Gaheris, as squire. They ride out into the countryside and soon catch up to the stag and the hounds that are pursuing it. And as they rode near to a deep forested valley, the wind brought them to the full bang of hounds in chase. And they urged their horses to speed and followed the pack down the slope into a swollen stream where they saw the white stag swimming across it. Just like the future Mrs. Daniel Boone, this deer runs toward a human dwelling another castle. Again, it runs right into the great hall, and there, without a second thought, Gawain kills it. Then a knight came from a side chamber with a sword in his hand, and he killed two of the milling hounds and drove the rest of the pack from the hall. And when he returned and he kneeled by the beautiful deer and said sadly, My dear white pet, they have killed you. The sovereign lady of my heart gave you to me and I did not take care of you. The angry knight vows to take vengeance on Gawain. Violence is highly regulated in this world by the code of chivalry. But at the same time, it seems to happen without warning in the most brutal way. The aggrieved knight duels with Gawain, and just as Gawain is about to strike him with his sword, a lady, perhaps the same one who had given the stag to the knight, throws herself in front of him and is beheaded. Deer and woman, both wordless and blameless, are dead, and Gawain is dishonored. Another lady of the castle makes arrangements that he should ride back to Camelot to confess his misdeeds to Arthur and Guinevere. On his horse, he must carry the headless body of the woman he has killed, and her bloody head hangs from his neck, a grisly anti-prize, the badge of guilt. Yet he is also granted the head of the white stag to prove that the quest was completed. It seems that the white deer, as a pet given to a man by a woman, had been in a way the equivalent of that woman, not just a symbol of her love, but a being who closely shared her fate, even after death. And even though he's become a criminal, in a way, Gawain still wins the day. After all, he did have a successful hunt, and he has the trophy to prove it.
I stepped outside and there are two younger ones standing side by side looking at me. Their heads are moving up and down almost like a curious dog. One of them, it's the same one that sort of took a step toward me yesterday. It looks really curious, but then gave that snort, the danger snort. Yeah, they're still looking at me. I really get the feeling that this one of them wants to come closer, but just isn't sure. But it's pretty much the same exact location. They're like 25 feet away from me. Since they tend to live closer to us than most animals, right? Okay. I mean, would you say that's true? Yeah, they like being on the edges of where we are. And also, you know, I, I feel like it's so obvious. It's, I'm almost embarrassed every time I say this or write it down, but like, they're big. They're just so big. And that makes them more significant to us, more noticeable, mm. more consequential. I mean, yeah, uh, it's true. There's really no other sort of animal that size that we actually ever encounter. I think also they're such a similar size to humans and that um, there's something significant about that too in our kind of psychological, you know, estimation of them. It's like we can easily see ourselves in them and um, they remind us of ourselves in certain ways. Do you see yourself in that bee? Well, I don't. I don't even so much. I mean, I seems like such a little. I feel like the alien. you know the deep ecology person in me wants to say yes mm. because it's a life form that we share the earth with, but also like it's just much harder to relate to a bumblebee. Yeah, yeah you know the yeah. the bees like just to think about its vision is completely different right. than ours. Sure. Right. But sure. A deer yeah. is a big warm mammal mm -hmm. with a rib cage just like mine and mm -hmm. you know and it sleeps just yeah. like you might yeah it has children it, it has a family yes seemingly. yes stories in different ways suggest a kind of kinship between humans and deer, suggesting that we are each other's relations or doppelgangers. Deer have been vessels that carry human meaning for thousands of years. They're not only hunters, quarry, and food, they play starring roles in many mythologies as victims, messengers, and guides. The most ancient art we know of, carved or painted onto rock, includes images of deer, or figures that combine deer and humans. And right into the present, deer continue to show up constantly in art, poetry, and design. When I was working on my book about deer, I spotted them everywhere, on t-shirts and tea towels and logos for wineries and bottled water, and as always in paintings and stories and poems. I also found that deer turn up in the actual mythologies we're still living by, 
the stories that our culture tells itself about who we are and what it all means. Deer are still part of that. Here's something I wrote about a place I visited in upstate New York called Deer Haven Park, where deer seem as essential to the human understanding as they were to the Christian saints who once followed them to enlightenment. It was a benign summer afternoon as I drove along the shore of Cayuga Lake, north of Ithaca, New York. If I didn't think about it too hard, the Finger Lakes region felt that day like a happy part of the earth. There were comfortable old farmhouses surrounded by flowers, an Amish boy driving a buggy along the rolling road, sailboats pinned down to the surface of the lake by a benevolent sun. But the radio brought reports of record heat, it was 115 degrees in Athens, Greece, and tourists were sticking their heads into public fountains to cool off. Wildfires were burning around the Mediterranean. A reporter talked about people volunteering to have electrodes implanted in their heads so that their brains could pick up virtual reality signals. And here in upstate New York, little signs in the berms proclaimed which strains of GMO corn grew in the fields. Just another day of being alive in the 21st century. I pulled into the parking lot of Deerhaven Park, a place where the ruins of the 20th formed the backdrop of one of America's strangest tourist attractions. The park is a sprawling military ruin, which is known for its herd of white deer. At the time the pale-coated animals first made their appearance here in the 1940s, the United States Army controlled a total of 10,000 acres in the vicinity, enclosed in a fence and christened the Seneca Army Depot. It was a strategically located munitions storage facility, hastily built in 1941 during the run-up to World War II, and it continued to serve the military through all of America's overseas conflicts through the Gulf War. The depot seized operations in 1995, and returned to local control five years later. Various parts of it were later sold off. But the white deer have persisted. In the evenings, locals used to drive along the perimeter of the depot, counting white deer from their station wagons before going out for ice cream. Others would breach the fence, rifles in hand, looking for trophies. Since 2017, the deer have been the subject of official tours. White deer have historically played a heightened role in legends and myths, embodying all the traits of deer in general, but in amplified form. They've led Christian saints to conversion, guided King Arthur's knights Galahad and Percival to the Holy Grail, and overseen the creation of the world in the Yurok ceremony called the White Deerskin Dance. The power of any deer to grab human attention is ramped up when that deer has a white coat. This is no less true today. Common debates about hunting and culling deer, already occasions for strong emotion become near hysterical where white deer are involved. Hunters often see white deer as either categorically off limits or else as especially desirable trophies. 
Near where I live, the city of Charlottesville hires professional sharpshooters to control its deer population, but issues special instructions not to shoot the white ones. At Seneca, the majesty and mystery bus tour doesn't guarantee a white deer sighting, though promoters make liberal use of white deer imagery, including a white buck's head on the park logo. But tourgoers can count on hearing about the military history. Inside the visitor center, I saw artifacts from the depot's working years, like a 1940s-era explosion-proof telephone displayed right alongside deer photos, turkey feathers, and schlocky gifts. I was tempted by a paper towel holder made of antlers. As I wandered around, a couple watched a video of workers in full-body suits removing nuclear contamination from parts of the depot. A poster on the wall showed an American flag behind a quote from Edith Lisk, who had owned one of the hundred or so properties seized by the Army in 1941 to create the depot. Mostly these were family farms, and this site had been chosen in part because the Army deemed the farmers too patriotic, too few, and too poor to mount any serious resistance. People were given three weeks or less to harvest what crops they could, pack their things, and leave. Then the Army bulldozed and burned their houses and barns to the ground. It was a brutal act of the state, but Edith Lisk, for one, expressed exactly what the government must have hoped to hear. I'd rather give my farm to the government now to make America strong than to see another woman give her son's life to the defenses of the country when we didn't prepare. I got onto a bus with a small knot of other tourists. The guide introduced himself and the driver, I'll call them Hank and Jim, respectively, while the bus waited for a large gate to squeal open. We were soon crawling along at five miles per hour, doing what Hank had told us to do, look deep into the woods and far down the roads. Not 10 minutes later, a white-haired man sitting right in front of me suddenly interrupted Hank to yell, deer running in the corn, I seen him. He pointed to a good-sized field out the windows to our left. Everybody squinted hard. Then someone said, a brownie as a buck of normal color leaped up and over the rows of corn. He kept breaching and breaching, his body making long arcs, and I was reminded of dolphins surfacing above the ocean. Actually, the atmosphere on the bus was exactly like that of a whale-watching trip I'd once taken, a sort of competitive excitement. He was a big boy, said a blonde woman. Not all the Seneca deer are white. In fact, the majority are brown. Truman Bells, who manages the tours, had already explained that to me on the phone, along with the fact that the white deer were once completely protected from hunting, until they multiplied enough that they had to be managed just like the brown deer. He'd said, too, that the current owner of the property, Earl Martin, was trying to grow the white herd. Martin was paying for corn and other crops to be planted in the depot purely for the benefit of the deer, and in turn the tour business. The white deer, Hank told us now, were not albinos. Rather, they were leucistic, carriers of a recessive gene that can also show up in alligators, squirrels, and other animals. Leucistic deer occur everywhere occasionally, but in this fenced environment under human protection, that recessive gene had taken hold and spread. 
A white fawn could be born to a brown doe, but two leucistic parents would always have leucistic offspring, lacking pigment in hair and skin. About 75 white deer were now living inside this fence, free to hop over if they liked, but mostly not bothering to leave. $1.50 was the price per acre the army paid those they evicted. $1.50 was also the wage per hour the army paid the workers who built all these miles of roads, railroads, and fence. And they built 500 storage igloos, half-round concrete buildings blanketed with sod to disguise them from the air. Many of them had small trees growing from their roofs, like a goofy, ruinous form of hair. The igloos were designed not to blow each other up, if there were an explosion, its force would travel upward, not sideways. They also included ventilation systems. As Hank pointed out, you don't want your bombs to get moldy. These days, along with the corn, the igloos represented another perk to deer living in the park. On a hot day like this one, 57-degree air came wafting out of the igloo vents, giving the deer a cool place to rest. Jim stopped the bus in front of an igloo, and Hank, grabbing the handle of the concrete door and leaning all his weight outward, slowly persuaded it to open. We trailed inside, a perfect concrete arch for a ceiling, a perfect empty concrete floor. The acoustics were wondrous. A single murmur would echo endlessly, folding on itself, growing and twisting, bell-like. We giggled and tried to talk to each other, though it was impossible to decipher the words. A young guy stood in the middle and whistled. It made me think of the workers who'd built these igloos, then tended their troubled contents for the next five decades, including the nuclear cleanup crew. They must have heard those echoes, too. Back in the bus, we inched along. The sun was lower now, glaring on the windshield. We were more than halfway through the tour and had seen only a handful of deer, all of them brown. At one point, Jim backed up in order to give everyone a better look at a brown deer, an animal that any of us, I guessed, could see for free any day of the week. He's lying down, explained the woman who'd spotted it. I saw his little ears. I noticed that Hank had a way of continually renewing the promise of white deer sightings, talking about times when he'd seen 14 white bucks napping under a loading dock or herds cooling off in open igloos. When they came out, they all looked guilty. He seemed generally exasperated with the deer, like Ranger Smith's attitude toward Yogi Bear. It never fails, he said. While people are looking in one direction, a white doe will walk out into the road behind them. It's standing there sticking its tongue out at us. He also talked about other animals, turkey, foxes, a bald eagle pair that nested here every year. But the mood on the bus was on the edge of curdling. One guy was impatiently scrolling on his phone, though his diligent wife was still peering around, her gaze like a swiveling gun. An eagle showed itself for several seconds. At least one animal's cooperating, Hank muttered. Perversely, I was starting to hope we'd see no white deer so I could conclude that we'd all been scammed. Somehow that would be more satisfying than thinking we had simply failed to spot what we paid good money to see. Seneca, we were told, was not a zoo, but it felt so much like one. That same fear of missing something, 
the rubberneckers' zeal to be entertained. Wisely, Hank changed the subject to nukes. At some point in the 50s, a certain sector of the depot had been specially outfitted for storage of nuclear weapon components. The date was unclear, but Hank did have lots of details on security. The four layers of fencing that protected the Q section, the MPs doing constant jeep patrols, and the all-night lights. They were serious in here, he said. Once in a while, a guy mowing the grass might steer too close to an igloo and trip a sensor. An MP would come out, and he'd be on the ground. It was, show your ID. Don't move until we say. They didn't mess around. Secrecy had been paramount. Yet somehow, in 1983, the Army accidentally published the fact that its civilian staff at Seneca included a nuclear technician. Anti-nuclear activists were soon targeting the depot for protests. The first group of protesters were Catholic nuns, said Hank, and they were very nice. The nuns, he said, would call ahead to make sure their picketing wouldn't actually disrupt anything. But then the women's encampment showed up, a large group of feminists who intended to draw serious attention to Seneca's role in the planetary horror of the nuclear arms race and to block NATO deployment of nuclear weapons in Europe. They began in May 1983 by purchasing a farm near the depot and setting it up as a communal encampment and were soon regularly practicing civil disobedience at the depot gates. As many as 2,000 women joined the movement at its peak, a march to the depot on August 1, 1983. Locals in Seneca County were largely nonplussed. They'd line up at the gate or along the road near the farm, waving American flags and screaming, nuke the dykes. All these years later, Hank, who'd grown up in the area, still seemed energized when he reenacted a standoff between demonstrators and locals in nearby Waterloo. The women did all sorts of nasty stuff, he said. And the locals said, you're all going home. We don't want you here. He glared at us, gesturing vigorously. We continued creeping through the depot. Dusk had come. We need a whitey, Hank said. I was starting to cringe at this lingo, brownie, whitey. It felt weird and wrong how people kept spotting deer then saying in disappointed voices, it's a brownie. I suspected that we were all complicit in some sort of unstated agreement that yes, deer are beautiful save their one flaw of brownness. If only they could be white. Here at Seneca, the dream was a reality. The brown ones and white ones hang out together, Hank had said earlier. They don't know their different colors. The implication seemed to be that if the deer could perceive their own racial differences, they would naturally segregate themselves. We were now, as Hank put it, in extra innings. It was well past the time when the tour had been scheduled to end, but he and Jim were determined to find some white deer, preferable, I guessed, to giving everyone on the bus a voucher toward another tour. Personally, I would never have cashed it in. I was a little sick of caring. The white deer are sometimes called ghost deer, but I found myself overwhelmed instead by human ghosts. Though the depot may have entered a kind of rewilding phase around the millennium, quietly sitting out the post-9-11 era, the wars hadn't stopped. Even the present-day uses of depot land, a maximum security prison, 
the juvenile detention facility, spoke to the brokenness of the world, the sadness that gathered under the aegis of America. The white deer were here because of war, because of the army's fence, and because of the army officers who'd forbidden their killing. Apparently, the colonel in charge at the time had told his men, if any of you shoot them, you're on the next plane to Greenland. It was as though the deer's presence had served all the way back into the 40s as a counterweight to all of Seneca's simmering peril, something innocent, a wonder that just showed up here and could be protected in a way that was simple and easy. The story we were being told here was not about the power of nature to awe and surprise us. It was about the power of empire, how fast we could build all those igloos, how much was sacrificed by the greatest generation, how marvelous and protective was the technological might of our military. The white deer were just a pretext, as though nature itself had sprinkled a sugary blessing on the whole project of human domination. In the end, we did see a white deer, an antlered buck, posing for easy photos in a field about 30 yards away. And then we drove back to the parking lot and everyone bolted for their cars. Night had come. I drove off into the powder-dark farmland and realized that after hours of scanning the depot's landscape of ghosts looking for white deer, I was now scanning the pool of light made by my headlights trying to be ready for any deer of any color that might run into the road. In our next episode, we'll be thinking less about the idea of deer and more about actual deer. We'll be talking with a couple of people who, because of their work, have a very close physical relationship with the bodies of deer, but for two very different reasons. You've been listening to If You See a Deer. This podcast is written and produced by Erica Hauser and Tyler Carter and edited by Tyler Carter. Music is by Blue Dot Sessions, All My Heroes, and John Gulino. Our guest was Daniel Justin Herman. We also heard a clip from the 1942 film Bambi and an excerpt of Fess Parker's song, Daniel Boone. We heard Sarah Gridley reading her poem, Housework, and Adam Tobin reading Sir Walter Scott's poem, Hunter's Song. The Daniel Boone story was published in the biographical memoir of Daniel Boone by Timothy Flint. The Inglacotma story was published in Tales of North American Indians, selected and annotated by Stith Thompson, and the King Arthur story came from John Steinbeck's The Acts of King Arthur and His Noble Knights. Big thanks to Mary Garner McGee at WTJU-FM in Charlottesville, Virginia, and to the Virginia Audio Collective.